0: Mentioned in the prayer, we are on a third Sunday of, of the Advent Sundays. We don't necessarily do the whole um, um, practice, but uh, it, I think it's a good time for us to uh, focus on the Advent themes uh, four Sundays before Christmas. And so we have been looking at Advent, the theme of Advent, uh, over the past two Sundays, and this is the third one. Uh, we have been looking at the theme of anticipation. What does it mean to wait? What does it mean to anticipate? And uh, especially in the theme of in, in the time, this time of Advent, we have looked at Isaiah, we've looked at Micah, and we have noted that Advent, the, the theme of waiting and anticipation emerges in the context of the uh, people of Israel, God's people, uh, in a particular historical context. Advent is waiting, and uh, we have considered what does it mean to wait? Um, you might, some of you, you might know this, uh, but historically Advent used to be not so much about the birth of Jesus, although it's surrounded around the birth of Jesus. Um, historically, Advent has been a time to, to anticipate something else, and that is the return of Jesus, the, what is known as the second coming of Jesus. And obviously, th- this is a very interesting idea. Um, and Advent, historically, uh, up till, I think, the 18th century uh, in the Roman Catholic, this was before the Reformation and Protestantism rose up, uh, the Roman Catholic Church would, would observe these Advent Sundays as a way of looking forward to the coming of Jesus, the, uh, not, not so much the birth of Jesus. So this was a time of repentance, of, uh, of penitence, and fasting, something close to the Lent that we see in uh, during Passion Week. Um, so, this is the time of waiting for that day when Jesus comes back. And I thought that that's, that's a very interesting theme. And we don't really think about that during Christmas. But I thought that's some, there's some wisdom in that perspective. And I thought it's worth taking one Sunday to think about that. Uh, what does it mean to wait for the return of Jesus as we think about waiting for Christmas Day, right? So, that's the theme for today. Like, what does it mean to wait for Jesus in that from that perspective for the return of Jesus and if you look at the Old Testament text there are so many texts about focus on on that day on that day on that day uh, but I decided to go with Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 11 because it's very memorable it's remarkable in its in, in, in the in the images that are portrayed in Isaiah 11 it's beautiful. And it's got this enthralling imageries, um, vivid imageries. And also, conveniently for Christmas, Advent Christmas, it's tied to the Christmas narrative as well. So uh, I decided to go with Isaiah 11. So that is a text that we'll be looking at uh, for our reflection today. So um, I don't have a slide up, but if you could uh, turn with me to your devices or your Bible and look at Isaiah 11. Let me read first from verse 1 to 5. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 5. A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. And with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the root, with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So Isaiah 11, just quickly if you look at the context, um, this is around the similar context that we have been looking at over the past two Sundays. So you might find some of these uh, quite uh, repetitive but uh, if you just bear with me this comes in a context when israel the people of israel are in the shadow of a mighty empire that's emerging beside them which is assyria and as i mentioned last week assyria uh the the empire spanned across the middle east across present-day iraq iran uh kuwait syria and uh turkey as well so it's a huge empire And they were emerging. As I mentioned last Sunday, they they had this innovation of uh, the use of iron in warfare. And that really catapulted them, shot them up to be a superpower in the region. And they were living in the shadow of this. But Israel was at a time of relative prosperity. They were rich, they were wealthy. And and even though they were living in prosperity, there was the internal rot. There was, uh, and also the external threat of Assyria. And there were prophets who were bought by money, um, who proclaimed this fake news of peace, saying, uh, this, this is a time of peace. There's no, there's, uh, there's no threat to us. We can enjoy. Uh, in a contrast to that, Isaiah and Micah comes and says, Assyria is going to attack you. Assyria is going to attack you and uh, you will fall. So it is in this context that um, Isaiah 11 uh, is proclaimed. If we would just look a bit closer at the text. First one, it says a shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. And I, I want you to visualize the image, imagery here. Imagine there's a, 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 a lush forest that has been cut down and there's uh, stumps of, of wood that used to be trees that have been cut down and in fact, the, 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 this picture is a kind of a carryover from chapter uh, Isaiah chapter nine, chapter ten. If you uh, if you uh, look at that those texts, in those texts, Isaiah is prophesying, okay, ahead of time. Isaiah is prophesying that God is going to execute judgment on these nations, on Assyria, on all these great nations, and God is going to cut down these these nations like he cuts down a tree. And among all of these stumps of trees that have been cut down, majestic, great trees that have been cut down, there's one stump. There's one stump that, that is the stump of Jesse that represents the people of God. And from this stump, a shoot is going to emerge. A small, uh, a small plant is going to grow from there. This is, a, first of all, a picture of hopelessness, a picture of a post-destruction, a post-warfare kind of imagery. And from that image of destruction, a shoot, a sign of life, is going to emerge. Israel will be cut down, but a shoot is going to emerge from that mess. There is nothing, this is what one scholar writes, and let me just uh, read it out because it portrays it quite well. There is nothing left but the stump of the tree, and out of it is to come a shoot, slender and insignificant, and in strange contrast with the girth of the truncated bowl, it is even stately in its mutilation. But a branch is going to grow and the shoot which conveys the, the promise of Messiah. So from this image of destruction, there comes a shoot. Um, and if you think of a shoot in, in, in the context of uh, a vast field of stumps, of trees that have been cut down, you might, it, it comes, in that context, it, it's quite insignificant. It's quite small and uh, threatened uh, in, in the wide expanse of destruction. right? And I think that's, that's the image that is portrayed here as well. The, the image of modesty, image of humility. And of course, we talked about this last Sunday as well. Bethlehem is, uh, is a town, obscure town, and it is out of Bethlehem that The savior of the world is to be born out of the obscure out of the insignificant and and the vulnerable is uh, life is going to emerge from that place so if you keep looking at the text uh, in verse two there's a lot of references to the spirit of the lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom the spirit of understanding this of course is a powerful language of uh if we can call it baptism of the anointing, and of course, this points to the themes of royalty. In other words, Isaiah is saying that this, stump, uh, this shoot that's emerging from the stump of Jesse, this will be a king. This will be a king that's anointed by the Spirit. And the characteristics of this king, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord, these are everything that the kings of Israel, kings of Judah, had failed at. They had failed to uphold justice. They had failed to, to fear the Lord. But this coming king is going to fulfill everything that the kings have failed. And of course, this is also a huge comparison against the big empires of Assyria and the big empire, emperors of uh, Babylon as well. So inherent in this image, there's a picture of promise that even when Assyria attacks the massive and powerful kingdom, even after the attack, there is hope. And hope is going to come through this promised, anointed ruler. Of course, we know that through the other name, Messiah, uh, the Christ. Right? So, let's, that's the context of Isaiah 11. Let's talk a bit about fulfillment. Was, were these promises fulfilled? First of all, we, we, we have noted last Sunday as well, that um, Assyria does end up attacking uh, Israel, the two kingdoms. Remember the, the figure from last week, two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Assyria does ends up attacking um, the northern kingdom. And Assyria was, um, uh, was taken away by the northern kingdom. And this was around 720 BC, uh, 700 years b- before b- uh, Jesus was born. And this was so, so the, the promise comes true that Assyria thus attacked Israel. And of course, later on, what happens is that um, when, when tragedy struck them, and the people longed for redemption. Um, and the people were defeated, first of all, by the Assyrians. And then eventually, even the southern kingdom was defeated by the Babylonians, the Nebuchadnezzar. This comes, of course, 100, 200, almost 200 years later. But they are eventually defeated by the Babylonians. In other words, the two kingdoms of God's people have been completely defeated by these foreign nations. What did waiting mean in that context? Um, And the reason why I went into such a long introduction on the context is because I want us to really feel the the experiences of, I mean, in, in whatever way we can, to feel the desperation of the people of God. What did waiting mean for those people? who they thought they were on a roll, they thought God was with them, and they were taken by surprise, they were defeated by these great nations. What did waiting, what did anticipation mean for those people who were defeated? I think it's, I think uh, this is just my, my own uh, re-narration, but I think it might have um, uh, been something similar to this. They must have lamented and thought, what happened to all the promises that God gave us? And what, what about all these promises that he gave us that he will return? He will redeem us. Can we really trust in these promises? Can these promises really happen as they said? Maybe they, they would have thought, I don't see a way out of this. Uh, the Assyrians where there's no sign of decline. Uh, they, they were uh, technologically advanced. Their military, uh, their military was much more advanced. I don't see a way out of this. Is it worth holding on to God's promise uh, even though there's no sign of redemption from this? I think what it means for them to trust is, uh, what it means for them to wait is to continue trusting in God's promise. To continue trusting in God's promise. Um, do do, Do not give up. Do not give in and lose faith even when things don't look possible. It also means to trust and to not worship other gods. Uh, Imagine these people people were exiled and taken to different nations, far off lands. They were exposed to all these gods and uh, ways of life. And they had the option. And these gods and ways of life looked more appealing because uh, they had the wealth, they had the power. To trust in God in that context would mean to look beyond the apparent power. To, to not worship those gods that look so appealing. So to trust in God for those people in exile means, first of all, to trust that God's promise will come true. And secondly, to not worship these gods and these other gods, to continue trusting in their God and trust that their God will come true. Their God will rescue them. So that's how, in a very small sense, anticipation and trust might have looked like for them and of course their trust is well worth it because even the great Assyrian Empire collapsed. Uh, it was ab- uh, swallowed up by the Babylonian Empire. Even the Babylonian Empire at its height uh, of Nineveh and uh, all of these great cities were absorbed, were defeated by, uh, by the Persians. So. The promise did come true. And especially in, in the, uh, under, the ruler, under, under the kingdom of Persia, the Israelites were allowed to return to Jerusalem. They were allowed to set up their, their uh, temple once more. <coughs> and I think in, in that context, the people, the people of Israel may have celebrated and said, yes, this is the fulfillment of the promise. Uh, this has come true. God has said that he will redeem us and he has redeemed us. And yet, there was something still lacking in that fulfillment. Uh, is it right to say lacking? There's still something incomplete in that fulfillment. Because according to the promise, the, 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 the promise says that there will be a king, an eternal king. But even though the people have returned to Jerusalem after the exile, they were still kingless. They didn't have a, a ruler. They were still under the... Uh, the uh, control of these big empires, and they're not yet there. The, even though the promise have been fulfilled, there's still space for more complete fulfillment. Surely, there's something more, right? They must have been asking. There's some. I'm sure there's something more. So the promises happened as a historical moment. God's promise of redemption has happened, but it's not yet fully uh, completed yet. And of course that is where the writers of the gospel matthew mark luke and john picks up these prophetic words of uh, of redemption and applies it to talk about jesus and portrays jesus as this promised king and essentially isaiah and micah reworks this these poems and says it's not just about assyria it's not just about babylon and Persia, and the historical moment, but it's also about the Messiah, Jesus, who is being born in a manger. It's about this this person who is born in Bethlehem. In Mark 1, um, the the text that we looked at, Isaiah 40, is referenced in Mark 1. Last week's text, Micah 5, is referenced, as I mentioned, by King Herod's uh, scholars. Uh, when he asked them, where's the king who's been born, the king of the Jews? And so these, these references have been picked up by the gospel writers to talk about Christ, to say that Christ is the anointed ruler, just as it has been prophesied. For the exiled people, they were waiting for redemption. They were waiting for the, the, the ruler. And the gospel writers tell us that Jesus is that person that they have been waiting for, the Messiah. So in Christ, there's another level of promise fulfilled. And yet, and yet, what about us today? We live in this side of history in which we, we ha- uh, we, uh, Christ has been born, uh, his life and death and res- resurrection has happened. And for us today, we live in this world, and yet when we read this text, We know that it has happened, and yet there's still something, still incomplete. Like, this week is a classic example of how life gets to us, right? Sickness and uh, busyness, right? There's something still yet incomplete. There's more to wait for. There's more to anticipate for. And I think we hear echoes of this in Isaiah 11, verse 6 to 10. So let me just continue reading uh, from 6 to 10. Um, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. This is the vision of what happens when the king is the, the ruler of uh, God, the ruler that God promises is uh, in, in, um, comes in fullness. Verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie together. And the Lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. And we could keep reading, but I think we'll, we'll uh, read up till there. So when you read this, verse 6 to 10, you realize that the promise that God gave the people is much more. I mean, there's a lot happening here. There's a lot promised here. There's, and if this imagery that, that captures uh, uh, basically animals that are enemies hang out together, um, there's a rec- sort of reconciliation happening here between, between, uh, um, between say, the bear the cow I mean, this is like crazy images going on right? Um, if this is what we're waiting for then this is not yet fulfilled this is not yet already here I mean, there's something more that we're waiting for if this is what we're waiting for then our task of waiting and anticipation is not over yet And I think this is where the Advent, the waiting for Christ, comes in in full power for us as well. Christmas and anticipating for Christ is not merely looking back at something that happened in the past 2,000 years ago, although that is important. It's not merely just nostalgia. It's looking forward to what Christ is bringing, right? This is what Fleming Rutledge, uh, this is an Episcopalian priest, American, who says this, and I quote, What has been largely lost to us since the 18th century enlightenment is the primary focus on the second coming of Christ, who will arrive in glory on the last day to consummate the kingdom of God. This is the special note of Advent, its orientation toward the promised future. In this light, in this perspective, Advent or anticipation for Christ is forward-facing. It's anticipating for the promises of God to be fully realized in our lives. It's not only anticipating for Christmas Day, which is great. It's not just um, praying for Jesus to be born into our hearts, which I think in some sense makes sense. It's it's more than, more than just those things. It's also anticipating, praying, even lamenting that things are not the way that it should be yet. And we have somewhere to go. We have something more to hope and dream for and, and long for. And what's remarkable about the imageries in Isaiah eleven six 6 to 10, is that it's not just that God is promising your enemies will be wiped out, they'll be all killed, and you are going to be victorious. It's not just triumph. It's reconciliation. It's restoration, right? There are, there are historical enemies like cows and bears and infants and cobras that are able to get along and stay together. The young child will put the hand into the vipers' nest. Man, I mean, that's, that, that's scary imageries. But here the imagery is that uh, things that have been uh, irreconcilable will be reconciled on that day. And that is something... That we can look forward to. It's not just triumphalistic victory. That you are going to be the the boss. You're going to be the king. You're going to rule. um, Although I guess in a way you could think about those things uh, on that day. But it's also about restoration of the relationships. uh, Restoration of human relationships. Restoration of God and human beings. Humans and humans. And humans and creation. Humans and the rest of creation. Last week we we noted one phrase, swords into plowshares, and we noted how vivid that imagery is. The tools that are used for violence and for conflict will be transformed into tools to feed one another, to create something productive. So that is what anticipation can mean as well, if we have the right perspectives. And I think speaking personally, I think this perspective of anticipation seemed to make more sense. Because honestly speaking, I'm, I'm always conflicted every Christmas about uh, struggles, about difficulties during Christmas. Uh, I'm always unsure like, how to deal with struggles. Like, are we supposed to just smile and just not think about the struggles and challenges? Um, are we supposed to just you know, sing happily on Christmas? Day? Which, which I think, uh, again, to a certain extent uh, is fitting. But when we realize that the whole practice of Advent, right, the whole practice of tradition of Advent emerges among people who are exiled, pe- emerges among people who are far away from home, longing for something, living in poverty, Advent emerges in a, in, in a context of crisis and despair. I think there's something there, something there to worth thinking about, um, and I think this perspective of anticipation for the fulfillment of Christ, in some sense, is more honest, if I, may say, uh, um, if I may put my thoughts personally. This perspective of waiting for Christ allows us space to lament as well. We look at our situation, our life, and we can be real and not numb to suffering. Right? We can be real to the challenges that we see around us. In the face of blatant commercialization, blatant marketing and advertisements, uh, this perspective on anticipation gives us the opportunity to consider the world and the situation in its reality, in its realism. It allows us to accept that, yes, some things are still not yet fulfilled, some things are still wrong, um, and we, there's more to anticipate towards. So um, just some practical implications, if I may offer some learning from the exiled people of God in, in Babylon, people who are living in the shadow of Assyria. What can we learn from them? How do we wait? Uh, how do we learn from them and wait for Christ? Uh, as I mentioned, trust in him. Um, choose to trust in him. Choose to not give up, but continue to trust in God, even when things don't look uh, uh, like it has, there's any prospect in trusting. But choose to trust and continue trusting in God. Secondly, choose to uh, not worship the other idols and other options that might be there. Um, choose to worship and trust in God. And thirdly, as I mentioned in, in, uh, in the later part, anticipate. And okay, so here, here's what's really interesting about uh, the, the whole experience of, the, the Jewish people. We note that the immediate historical crisis of them uh, being threatened by Assyria, threatened by Babylon, the immediate crisis, right? We, we all understand that immediate crisis, but we, 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 we quickly note that this immediate crisis becomes opportunities to dream of a future, to anticipate of a future far away, perhaps. So they are definitely praying for their situation right now, but this situation gives them um, the opportunity to think of something bigger. And if I may relate that in our context, every day we go through struggles. Uh, It could be health, it could be struggles, it could be um, uh, management, it could be relationship. What if we allow those specific moments of crisis and struggles to what if we allow those things to give us opportunities to think about anticipating for Christ? What if we allow those small, small, by small, I don't mean uh, uh, um, that we, they're, not, they're unimportant, but there are smaller specific crises and struggles that we go through. Can we allow these struggles to help us to dream, to envision, to lament, and to pray for the future on that day, future? The, and to anticipate for Christ through that small um, experience of crisis. I don't, I don't know if I'm making sense, but I think it's, it's really fascinating the way that the Israelites, uh, the people of Israel, um, allowed these opportunities of crisis to, to talk and dream and envision the future that they have in God. So to look beyond the immediate need, uh, Uh, Even in in our household, for example, we are struggling with health at this point. But can we allow that immediate experience of uh, the struggle to look beyond the immediate and to remind us of the ultimate goal, ultimate vision, ultimate anticipation on that day when there will be no more sickness, when there will be... um, Yeah, so uh, you can fill in the blanks there. So I think that's that's what we learn from the people of Israel. Not so much that... uh, Again, I'm not saying that their immediate context is not important, definitely important, but they allow those opportunities, they allow those moments to give them opportunities to think about the anticipation of God's work in their life. So if you think about Christmas, um, the shepherds went, ran as fast as they could with so much anticipation to meet, to meet the baby Jesus. The wise men... The, the the three wise the uh, apparently three wise men who they spend their wealth they spend their money to, to buy gifts they spend their time to travel all of that journey because they wanted to meet Jesus they anticipated to meet Jesus uh, Mary and Joseph nine months of pregnancy for Mary they waited and waited awaiting the birth of this promised son in 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 anticipation. What about us? We can, we can certainly remember the scenes, right? We can certainly anticipate the birth and the, the Christmas day. But we can also look forward with similar anticipation for what is coming. And that is the advent, the, the return of Christ on that day, when everything will be restored and when everything will be set right, as it's pictured in Isaiah 11, in that beautiful imagery of different animals. Um, um, being together. So then, um, during this Christmas, during this season, uh, we can we can lament, we can uh, we can acknowledge the struggles that we have, um, and yet we can also rejoice that one on that day Christ is going to restore all things. We can continue to trust, and we can con- recommit ourselves to trusting in Jesus. Um, and we have it's precisely that we have advent and we have anticipation because we are exiled, because we are still far from home, because every day we, we experience struggles and difficulties. And that is exactly why we have advent. That's exactly why we anticipate for Christ, right? Because things are not yet how it should be. Things are not yet how it has been promised. And therefore, we, we anticipate. Therefore, we have advent, right? So let us be lifted up in spirit and let us renew our choice to trust in the promise of God as promised in Isaiah 11 and elsewhere. And if I may say so, let us awaken the sense of need for the return of Christ. Let us be unabashedly longing for that day when things will be restored. Um, When everything that's aching and everything is breaking apart will be restored. And, uh, and I think that is the, the hope of Advent. That is the hope of Christmas. And um, before I, I ask Holam back to sing, uh, let me just read the, the song that we have just sung, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, so I'm just going to read maybe three verses that really uh, connects with uh, the, the, the thoughts that I've shared. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save, and give them victory over the grave. O come, O key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe for us the heavenward road, and bar the way to death's abode. O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. O come, O King of nations, bind in us the hearts of all mankind. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our King of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Amen.